Our scripture passages this morning come from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the very last part of the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14. And then we will turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and read verses 15 through 31. John 14, verses 15 through 31. Please stand. Ecclesiastes 12, beginning at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter... All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now turning to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, beginning at verse 15. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me. And I in you, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my words and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Please be seated.
Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, your word says that your divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ. That is the very nature of truth, to set us free, that we might obey, that we might love, even as Christ said in these words that we just read. And so, Father, we pray for the ministry of your spirit and your truth in our hearts just now and grant each and every one of us that truth, that knowledge, those commands, those duties that we need to hear, that we might do them. But grant us also that love that would commend them to us and to pursue them with all that we are and all that we have. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to give you a couple stats, and in your mind, what I want you to say is enough is enough. How many cars does a man need? That's a a dangerous thing to say, and to equip men to go home and actually take that literally and make their case for how many cars they need with their wives. I remember there was a time when I looked at our driveway, we had four different cars out there because all the drivers we had in our family, I thought, that's enough. But what is enough? What if I told you 350 cars? That's what Roger Dudley has in England, 350 cars valued about $50 million. I think that's probably enough. How about net, net worth? You could probably guess one of the names I could put at the top of that list, Jeff Bezos. I don't know where he falls in, in rank right now, but his net worth presently is about $152 billion. That's probably enough. What about real estate? Most of us would be happy if we could have two acres in the state of California. That would really be something. What about two million acres? Ted Turner has two million acres. He's only fourth on the all-time list of how, many, how much land people own. There's something similar happening in this passage as, as this book closes, a book that we prize in terms of wisdom literature. The author has spoken to us words of wisdom. They've not always been pleasant, not always what we would expect. But he's closing the book saying, but they're enough. You have all that you need. This is, this is enough. Well, let's see if I can persuade you that this is the case. He begins by talking about wise words. He says the preacher is wise. And notice he's now speaking about the preacher. The preacher is the author of this book. He's the person we've been hearing throughout this book. That's his voice. This is an editor. And this is an editor commending him to you and saying, this preacher that you've been listening to, he's wise. But he's not just wise, he is caring. In other words, he he taught the people knowledge with care. That's what he says here. In other words, that this rich display of the treasures of wisdom that we see in this book, these are written for our benefit, that he, he conveyed these things in order to help us. Now, there are some people who display their brilliance, uh, for, for other reasons. They want to show you how smart they are. And perhaps we could find an example of that uh, or show you how great they are in Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff wrote three piano concertos. I love them all. Many of you love those piano concertos. But it's the third piano concerto that is really, really hard. Some have said it's the most difficult piano piece ever composed. And some have speculated, I don't think without reason, that the reason Rachmaninoff wrote that piece was not for your beauty or benefit, but to showcase his skills as a pianist. So you can show off. 
And that's how some people are smart, what they do. But that's not what's going on with this preacher. He's, he's passing along with he, what he acquired by his wisdom, this knowledge that he wants to share with you because he is, he is concerned about you. And look how he describes it. These proverbs are not just kind of splashed out there in this kind of random form. It says he weighed them. In other words, he pondered. Which one should I choose? He studied them. In other words, he examined them individually. And then he arranged them, which means he, he ordered them. That's how these proverbs come to us. That's how these sayings and these poems come to us. They're, they're arranged. And, and that's important. Arranging, putting something in order, that's a hallmark of wisdom. It's a sign of wisdom. In Willa Cather's book, The Death Comes from the Archbishop, there's a point when uh, this priest from the southwest United States is making his case. He needs more priests. And the cardinal says to him, in the presence of both a German and a French uh, bishop, I suppose you'll be wanting a French one, not a German one. And of course, the German bishop, he's immediately offended. And he says, no, no, no. And he says this, the Germans classify, but the French arrange. This is not Christian Rett's favorite quote, in case you're curious. <laughs> but he's saying something. It's one thing to recognize something, to see it, to be able to, to, or to, to understand it. It's another thing to put these things in the right order. That shows real care and deliberation. He says that's exactly what our author has done. He did all this with great care. He was thoughtful about it. He was attentive to the details. These truly are words of wisdom, but they're also words of truth and words of beauty. And so he was intentional in the words that he sought out. Look at verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight. In other words, words that are more than just beautiful in their form, not just words that are pleasing to your ear, but words that are truly valuable. One of the most helpful words I could find, one of the most crucial words that I could find, words that transcend the art of their, of their form, words that ring with meaning and, and significance and are truly useful to the people who are reading this and, and hearing this. This is why he wrote words of truth. Boy, that's what we think of. We think of the book of Ecclesiastes. This author is honest. He's very clear. He's hard-hitting. We would say he's blunt. He's always coming in hot with the truth. But this word for truth here is the same word from which we get the word amen. If you say amen, you know Hebrew. It's the word that's used for a word that is faithful. It's sure, it's, it's dependable. This is the word that God used when he revealed himself to Moses on the mountain, Exodus 34, where he, he declared his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You could say abounding in his dependency, uh, this God who is uh, abounding in his truthfulness, in his trustworthiness. That's, that's the whole point. And so here we read these words, we can understand that there's character, deep character that lies behind these words. Every single letter and every word has the fragrance of integrity. These words and these sayings, these are to be prized, to be prized. These are words to live by. He's saying you could stake your life on these words. They're not just wise words, they're sufficient words. This is what he gets at in verses 11 and 12. So now he's transitioning. Because they are words of truth, he begins in verse 11 by saying, these words, they're going to sting. They're going to hurt. They're going to prick you. 
They're going to feel like a goad. Now, what is a goad? A goad, not goat, not greatest of all time, a goad. And the goad is a piece of wood that has nails in it. And it could be put behind the legs of, say, oxen or, or other animals that you're driving, and it would motivate them to move if they're not going to move. It can put it on a stick that you hold and kind of push them from the left or the right to push them in the direction you want them to go. We could think in modern days of a cattle prod. We had these in the feedlots in Nebraska. About this long, it has two prongs in the end. It tends a little shock. And some of the cattle hands tend to use them more than they really needed to. Um, but they motivate. But it hurts. And that's, that's the whole point. The truth hurts. It stings. These words of truth are, are like strong medicine. Medicine doesn't taste good, but it's good for you. The truth is like a hot coal taken from the altar. It's going to burn. And what he's telling us is the truth is not always something that feels warm and fuzzy. It's not always affirming. Uh, The truth is not always coming to us like sweet drops of comfort. But remember what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all scripture is is God-breathed. And it's useful for what? For rebuking and for correcting. Who likes to be corrected? Who finds that pleasant? Troxel, you were lying. That was arrogant what you said. You're being so selfish. Who wants to hear that? Especially when it's true. But the Word of God does that. It has that exposing quality to it. It's a hallmark of truth. Who enjoys hearing in this book that a life under the sun is a breath, that it is absurd, is, is a vanity? Who likes to hear that death is inevitable, as we heard again and again and again in this, in this book. And, and Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3. He says, the time is coming when people are going to gather around them, those that will say to them what their itching ears want to hear. People that only say pleasant, kind things. But this is a goad. And that's why he says it's given by a shepherd. Not just one shepherd. He says one shepherd. Now that's an interesting statement. Why is that there? It is probably, I don't think we can definitively say this, it is probably an insinuation of divinity. Not any shepherd. The truth comes from the one shepherd. It comes from God. And of course, that would allude to what is said repeatedly in the Old Testament, like in Psalm 80, verse 1, the shepherd of Israel who leads Israel like a flock. Or Isaiah 40, verse 11, that God tends his people like a shepherd. And you see, it's a shepherd who knows where the sheep need to go. He knows where the green pasture is. He needs to move them in that direction. He knows where the quiet water is. He knows where the valleys are to find relief from the hot sun. He knows these things. And so these are words that you need to hear. These words can save you. They're invaluable words because they're the truth. But then he says this in verse 12, that these words are enough. They're sufficient. Look at the phrase. He says, beware of anything beyond these. What he's telling us is the truth. And what's the temptation from some people when the truth smarts, when it hurts them? is to look somewhere else. He's saying, don't do that. Just because this truth is hard to hear, just because it's, it's bracing like a splash of cold water in the face and unpleasant, I'm warning you, don't go somewhere else. And that's why he's saying, how much more do you need? He said, you could read every teacher on earth. He says, there is no end of books. That's the point. You could study every school of thought. It's just going to make you weary. 
But the words of the preacher, these are wise. They've been weighed, they've been studied, they've been ranged. He sought the words that would help you, that would give you insight, that would keep you straight. He's pursued all the hard questions in this book. He's given you the truth. He's given to you straight. So here's the question. Why would you look anywhere else? Why do people look anywhere else? Why do people turn to to other sources? There's lots of reasons, but for some, it's, it's never about landing on the truth. It's about the search. Somebody has said that in the music industry, it's cool to be searching for God, but it's never cool to find him. The Bible says the same thing in 2 Timothy 3, 7. There are those who are always searching, but never arriving at the truth. Because it's never enough. And that's the temptation. The truth is too painful. It's too hard. I'm going to look somewhere else. It's that dissatisfaction with, with what we have. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They had everything they needed in the Garden of Eden. Everything they needed. But it wasn't enough. They wanted more knowledge. God has given us answers in the Bible. But what do people do? They go online for the meaning of life. And read words from some stranger, from somewhere, if it's even that person, some guru in some distant land. But we should always remember what Abraham Lincoln said, you should never trust everything you read on the internet. (laughs) But the question is bracing. If wisdom is right here, if the truth is sitting here right in front of you, why would you look elsewhere? Why would you go anywhere else? Now think about it. That's exactly the way the gospel of John ends in John 21. What does John write there? He says, if we were to write down all the good things that Christ did, it wouldn't fill up all the books in the world could not possibly contain all those things. What's he saying? But I have given you this, and it's enough. You have everything you need in this gospel to be saved from your sins. And to have eternal life. Why would you go anywhere else? That's the point he's making. And so in verse 13 and 14 he says this is the end. This is the end of the matter. When he's saying it's like it's all been said. It's all been done. The defense rests. Everything worth listening to has been heard. This is the end of the matter. But literally the phrase is this is the end of words. It's very interesting. The end of words literally is what we have in our texts. You don't need to read any more words. You don't need to study anything more. You've heard, you don't need to hear another word. You have all the words that you need. Literally is, is what he's conveying here. So here's the conclusion. Here's the final word. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God, keep his commandments. What is the fear of God? It's simply the regard for who God is, what he promises, and of course what he commands. And that fear is, is seen in, in our worship. It's seen in our, in our love for him. It's seen in humbly bowing before him. It's, it's seen in, in obedience and in keeping his commandments, which is, which is wisdom. In Exodus 20, amidst the Ten Commandments, we have that phrase that God shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. I think the way to read that, to understand it, God uh, show steadfast love to those who love him by keeping his commandments. In other words, it's, it's a type of obedience that flows from a willing spirit. 
that is ready to do what God requires. It's all these things wrapped up together, this love and this obedience. He says, this is a whole duty of man. This sums it up. But I've just told you, neatly comprehends all that you need to hear. This is, this is it right here. And that's why he said in verse 12, beware of going beyond this. Calvin in the Institutes loves to quote Deuteronomy 29, 29, which says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The revealed things belong to us and our children that we might obey them. What he's saying, those secret things of God, don't worry about that. Don't go searching after that. He's given us these revealed things. This is enough. This is all that you need so that you would obey them. That God's moral will is, is found here. And in fact, God's moral will is summarized in the Ten Words. And you're saying, what ten words? The Ten Commandments. Literally, it's the ten words that the prophet says, that God said, spoke all these words, these ten words. And it's the same sort of idea we have here. We have enough words. There's no reason to look elsewhere. This is, this is enough. Think of the Syrian general Naaman. He came to Elisha to be healed. And he was completely offended by Elisha. Because Elisha said, just go take a bath in the Jordan River. He says, why would I do that? In Damascus, we have more beautiful rivers. Why would I do that? He's offended. But he had a wise servant. And what did the servant say? Is it not a good word he said to you? Did he not say, be washed and, and be clean? But what is the servant saying? Isn't it enough? Is it not enough that he actually said these words to you? This is the whole duty of man. In verse 14, he says, and the end of the matter at the end is God will bring everything into judgment. Every, every deed, every secret, whether it's good or it's bad, will come under God's scrutiny. And there are those who are not content with the words of the preacher, even though they're so wise, they're so valuable, they're truth, and this is our duty. And so they wandered away and sought the words of false prophets, which are not wise, which are not valuable which are not the truth and not our duty. Jesus said, wisdom is proven by her children. As he spoke these words, he says, blessed are those who hear my words and do them. It's the same idea. There are so many people and so many books and so many people on the internet that claim to have, have wisdom, they claim to have the truth. They have this secret knowledge, this, this inner light. But it's the wise person who knows that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and wisdom keeps God's commandments. It's not complicated. There's nothing I said here this morning that's complicated, but it's the truth. The truth is like a goad, and some people are just not interested. They want something more. They want something else. And the truth of the matter is they want anything else. G.K. Chesterton said, when a man ceases to believe in God, he doesn't believe in nothing. He believes anything. What is our duty? The final word is given to us here. It's to obey God and to keep his commandments. And a warning here not to listen to the wrong voices. Not to chase after every new idea or book or internet craze. And there's so much out there that potentially could distract us. There's so much meaningless information on the web. And what Ecclesiastes said could not be more relevant. It is an endless search. You could do an endless search 
an internet over stuff that is nothing and that is worthless. And God has given to us his commands. And we need to appreciate those commands, that they're wise, they're good, they're useful, they're, they're practical, and we should obey them. And it's not just that. This should be our delight, that this should be our real treasure and the joy of our heart, our greatest concern. This should be our, our food. And this is where we find our true self, is in obeying the one who, who made us. And it's not just our delight. This book is telling us plainly this is our duty. And this is humbling. But we should humble ourselves and listen and do what is, is required of us and do it out of gratitude and, and humility and love. And think of what we just read earlier in John 14, 15, where Christ says, if you love me, what does he say? You will keep my commandments. That there's an inseparable relationship between loving Christ and obeying Christ, keeping his commandments. It's not really true obedience unless it flows from love. It's not true love unless it flows into obedience. This is why we love what Christ also says in that chapter, that we're not left to ourselves in this. This is why he gave us the Holy Spirit. This is why we enjoy the power of his grace being applied to us by that spirit. We have God's truth to help us in these things. What a great gift this is. And so we can truly say that obedience is the duty of your life. But will that obedience deliver your life? Obedience is the right thing to do. But is, is your obedience the righteousness of your life that God wants and requires? It's a just thing to obey God. But can we be justified by our obedience? And you know the answer. The answer is no. We do not trust in our obedience. We need something more solid. That's why for every Christian, his or her life is, is built upon the rock of the obedience of Christ. That's the final word of salvation. And that's why we end this, this book putting it into the greater context that our hope in, is in Christ who kept God's commands and kept them perfectly for us. That Christ's life of perfect obedience, that's a solid foundation for our salvation, for all of our, all of our hope. Why? Because he obeyed the Father. And that obedience led him to the cross where he paid the price and endured the penalty of what? Of our disobedience. But the father loves his son. And he is pleased with the obedience of his son. Why is he pleased with the obedience of his son? For two reasons. One, it's perfect. It's perfect. In fact, Christ could say that Satan has no claim on me. And what he means by that is the devil can find nothing to blame in Christ. He cannot come and exploit something. He cannot come and attack him at some point of vulnerability. He cannot come with any credible slander to raise against Christ. Now, that's not true when the devil came to tempt Adam and Eve. There he found weakness. Or when the devil tempted Moses, he found imperfection. When he tempted David, he, he found vulnerability. That's not what he found with Christ. He tried to tempt Christ in the desert and to encourage him to renounce his humiliation and path to the cross. 
He tried to tempt him through the religious leaders and to cause him to be tripped up in his words, but to no avail. He came to him in the Garden of Eden and tried to tempt Christ to refuse that cup of bitterness. He even came to him in the cross through the words of some to come down from the cross and to curse his father. But every single time, Satan came back empty-handed. He found nothing that he could accuse. And it's because Christ fulfilled all righteousness in perfect righteousness. This is why the father is pleased with his son. It's, it's a perfect obedience. But it's more than that. It is an obedience that is offered in, offered in the true spirit of obedience. Namely, it comes from the depths of an undying love. You see, Christ doesn't require anything of us. He does not require of himself. He talks about how, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is the very measure with which we can see that Christ uh, held himself accountable to. That obeying the Father, this is what Christ loved. It was not just his duty, it was his love. This is what he lived for. It's what he died for. That Christ came saying, behold, I've, I've come to do your will. We hear him saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Even in the garden, in all of his agony, and in being squeezed by great sorrow, he says, not my will, but your will be done. And you see, that is the will that was supreme with Christ in all of his life and his ministry and in his suffering. That is the will that nerved his soul for the horrors that he would experience upon the cross. That is the will for which he was born, for which he died for which he rose again, and for which he lives and reigns. It was the rule and the measure of all of his work and the measure of his love. You see, the father sees his son's obedience. He sees the motives that are driving it, the zeal that is behind us that we were singing of earlier. And he sees that singular love that would love the father to the end. A love so deep and committed that he would suffer so much for sinners like you and me. A love so strong that nothing could stand in his way. The sheer determination of love that would go to the very end, that would pay any price, that would do whatever needed to be done. Even whose final word on the cross was committing himself to the Father. This is a love that flows from a whole heart, where every meditation of his mind, all the perfect affections, but the strength of his will that's offered as a consecrated gift to God. And you see, the father looks upon this love, this love that drives his obedience, and he says, now this is love. An unblemished, beautiful love. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. A love with motives as clear as crystal flowing from the desire to reflect the glory of God. And we look upon this obedience of Christ, you will not find anything that is more complete or or more sure or more strong or more clean or more pure or more beautiful than his obedience. That's why God is well pleased with that obedience. But here is the good news. The father looks upon that obedience and the merits of that obedience and he counts it as yours. That is your obedience that shines before the Father in heaven. Romans 5.19 says, Through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. There is our righteousness. It's found in him, in the obedience of Christ.
Why does God forgive you of your sins? Why does he accept you? It's because he accepts the perfect obedience of his son and all who trust in that obedience, all who look to Christ. That's why. So God has spoken. He has spoken in this passage, these words of wisdom, these words of truth, and they ask you this simple question, will you obey him? Will you keep his commands? Will you, will you love him? But all the scripture tells us that God has spoken through the final word of Jesus Christ, the word of truth. And it is enough. See, the real question is, why would you search anywhere else? Why would you turn anywhere else? Why would you look anywhere else? Will you look to the one who is the answer to the empty way of life? Will you look to Christ? Or to put it another way, will you obey him? And will you love him? Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do pray that your spirit would apply these words to our hearts. That your truth and your grace would help us and what we see, what convicts us, what challenges us, what encourages us. We pray, Father, that you would do your work in us, that we would receive that word with humility and pursue it with, with a loving heart, with a view towards obedience. And we thank you for your promises that you would help us in this, that your grace is more than sufficient, it's more than enough, even as Christ is in his obedience, in his life, in his death and resurrection. How we thank you again for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.